Today's episode is brought to you by Airtable. Airtable makes it easy to create a completely custom editorial calendar that can evolve along with your team. And it plays nicely with Slack, too. Join the content teams of places like BuzzFeed Motion Pictures, Group 9 Media, and Condé Nast Entertainment. Visit Airtable.com slash Recode to get $50 off and free credits. Today's show is also sponsored by Qualcomm, which is part of the daily lives of billions of people around the world. They may not be the name you think of when you think of smartphones, but they invented all the stuff smartphones rely on to be so smart. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash we invent. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Studios with Joe Hagan, who is powering up with some coffee right now. We're going to talk about sex, drugs, rock and roll, publishing business, a little bit of the internet, some business stuff too. Joe has written an amazing book called Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. Welcome, Joe. Thank you for having me, Peter. This has been on my radar for a while. This is a big book. This is a book that, that when it got announced was a big deal. How many years ago? Four years ago? Yeah, four years ago. Well, that was a little three and a half. And luckily for you, in some ways, it's now making a second splash because, one, it's a big, important book. And, two, there's a story about the story, which is the subject of your story now disavows the book or doesn't want anything to do with it. Controversy. Controversy. It's worked out well for you. It has. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, that was a thing that could happen, that the controversy would be you know, good for me. That would be part of the publicity. I did know that it could end up being that he didn't like the book. Yeah. Uh, but the outcome in my mind was uh, that I would be like sued out of existence or you know, he would find a way to make it not make work for me. Make the book go away. Yeah, or something like that. And so um, it's not been that and I've been thankful for that. This is a long comprehensive biography of Jan Wenner who many people listening to this podcast will know, but in case people don't, was the creator, still owns Rolling Stone, or at least half of Rolling Stone magazine. That's right. And for a long period, was a really big deal in American publishing. I would American say, yeah. Media. He was kind of a celebrity in the 70s. He was a, a celebrity. Yeah, he, you'd see him often in the... You know, the gossip columns and the photo spreads and he was a, a man on the move. And, and the idea of this magazine editor as celebrity is something that has been fading for some time. We just saw a whole slew of semi-famous, yeah. semi-famous mm-hmm. editors resign. But this is a whole other strata of fame and power. It's, it's – one of the things I want to sort of talk to you about is sort of how to explain this book to an audience that doesn't really get magazines because magazines are, are sure. archaic today. But let's try. Why – and then we'll get into the controversy and all that. Why was Rolling Stone a big deal when it was birthed back in the 60s? Because uh, rock and roll music uh, was not really anywhere on the radar of the adult mainstream media, which was a very kind of narrow – you know, you had three TV channels right. and maybe like three or four newspapers in America that were powerful. But we're talking about well into the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Yeah, well, Stones the Beatles had just Elvis. come onto the scene, but they were considered this teeny bopper fad on right. the side. Had Nothing no you ro- would write about seriously. No, there was no credibility. And the Rolling Stones – to write about the Rolling Stones would have been like writing about like a strip club or something. It's like why? That's like this – it doesn't have any – it's not for the palate – of the the main you know uh, media consumer in the mainstream world, and Jan's whole thing was his timing was impeccable. It was like the summer of '67. You had the Monterey International Pop uh, Festival, which was the first time all these rock bands came together under one you know roof, and all the mainstream media showed up to say, "Hey, the kids are kind of organizing in this new way." and hippies have come around in San Francisco and there's this whole metastasizing culture going on. And the key component here was that the record company people were showing up with checkbooks and something was about to give, right? And this was about to become a business in a real way. Psychedelic groups with songs that went on for like 30 minutes or whatever could get a record deal, right? So even though decades later, right, we just grouped the 60s and pop music and and the rock music of the late 60s and and the Summer of Love and all of that into one big group, right? It wasn't it, – it didn't dominate mainstream culture at that time. We sort of caught it on the upswing. You it could was still on the cusp of, of this about to become mainstream. There were lots of people listening to music that wasn't like this as well, which is one of the mainly, picking up on. Mainly not listening yeah. to this kind of music. And magazines. This is, again, a, it's right. sort of hard to explain the, the importance of a magazine in the 60s, in the 70s, through sure. the 80s. Well, let's go back to what you just said. It was like why did – what did Jan capture here? 
he basically at the time to get a magazine in the mail, that was the entire internet, like right in a one little bound thing, right? And all the curated version of the internet. Exactly. All the crossroads were coming together and it was like, you know, anything you could know was gonna be here. You know, alternately you had uh, you get a record at the record store, you would just go over the liner notes and whatever else it said on it, and that was it as much as you were ever gonna know about these guys. Well here was the entire universe delivered on a platter. These guys were gatekeepers. Jan was an arbiter. He was able to package and kind of define a culture that had up to that point not been defined. And the way he defined it was his stroke of genius, which is he took elements that everybody recognized in the mainstream, like good writing, columns that were typed, you know, set, and not groovy, crazy psychedelic drawings and everything on them. It looked like a newspaper that your parents would get, except it had like stoners in it, you know? And so this was like a revelation. If you're 18 and you want to listen to like Iron Butterfly, here's your magazine. And was it important that it came out of San Francisco instead of Absolutely. New York where the rest of the yeah. media company it, it, was, because the media it business was, was? Yeah, it was on the opposite coast of the actual record business and had an outsider's point of view, but it was in the center of what was considered the youth boom. San Francisco, California, this is where everybody went to go see hippies, live among them and do drugs. I mean, and Jan knew that and he was sort of had it to himself. You know, I mean, he basically is like, I'm going to create a newspaper out of this place and you're all going to come to town and get into my magazine. And he wasn't the first person to write about music and as you no. go over and over in this in this book, borrowed, yes. this is the polite term for it, lots yeah. of ideas. Yes, absolutely. And lots of, other, uh, lots of other building blocks that went yeah. into this. He liberally lifted from other people. So people were trying this in various forms. Absolutely. Well, you think about like the Facebook story. I mean there's very similarities here where some guy, other guy comes to Jan with the idea. Hey, I'm going to make you the editor of my rock and roll magazine. This guy Chet Helms, who was like a famous hippie in, in San Francisco, asked Jan to do his magazine with him. Well, the guy kind of like doesn't really get it together. He's a little bit too much of a hippie. And Jan takes the idea and runs with it. And he's got the hustle, right? And he is also not a hippie. He's a preppy. You know, he's sort of a preppy who adopted. Jan is. He yeah, Jan's a preppy. A preppy. He's, he literally he's, went to prep school. He and he was like. Brooks Brothers. Even when he started Rolling Stone, he has a Brooks Brothers shirt on. He's he has a little sort of like uh, Prince Valiant yeah. hairdo and everything. But he's so he's half in, half out. He doesn't look super cool in the pictures. I would say yeah, people didn't know what to make of Jan in some ways because he's half in and yeah. half out. And but that makes him a journalist in a way, having a perfect journalistic posture in a way. There's a great photo in there of, of uh, Mario Savio being taken away at Berkeley, and then yes. I wouldn't, had no idea this was the with the case. But there's Jan Wenner in the background. It's a stringer. For that's NBC right. at the time, yep. running up behind him. Oh, that's right. And again, we'll, I guess we'll go back and forth in time. But but his ambition wasn't just to create Rolling Stone at one point, right? He had, you refer to the book several times as him. He wanted to create sort of a Hearst-like empire. Yeah, he wanted again, to be the, the Henry right, Luce of the counterculture. You know? So he had said, "I want to I want to create this this massive. He wouldn't call it them, which today you call multimedia empire, right? He wanted yep. his hands in lots of stuff. Now." Who knows? Depending on how quickly the sale goes by the time this podcast is out, he may have already sold his remaining half of the company. He's still a rich man. He's still going to make some money from the sale. But it's nothing like sort of what he could have had. Right. Do you think he's okay with – I mean clearly he's a man, among other things, motivated by money. Do you think he gets what he missed or got wrong? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's considered it. In fact, in our conversations, he would uh, – he began to kind of um, – recede from the idea that he had been a good businessman at all and he wanted to kind of shift over and adopt his legacy as an editor instead. I mean he would say always – he would always quote Ralph Gleason, his co-founder, the jazz critic, Ralph Gleason saying, you know, the proof that Rolling Stone was a good idea uh, is that it survived Jan's management. And Jan was the one that told me that quote and it was because he was sort of wistfully, vaguely, regretfully looking back on all the errors he had made. As a businessman. As a businessman. And he made a lot, but the most epic one was of like, you know, 10 years ago and um, when he took a loan that yeah. uh, sort of sunk him. So we, we can get into that. But, yeah, but, but to your point about at the beginning, his ambition was just – it was absurd. You know, it was at the level of like people are like, what? You want to be the Henry Luce of the counterculture? You want to be William Randolph Hearst? This was absurd. Out of rock and roll, out of like a rock and roll newspaper, this was an absurd idea. just shows you had this – kind of outrageous confidence. So among other reasons, um, when Jan Wenner, when the book, you give the book to Jan Wenner, he says, 
I hate this book. This is yeah. after him sort of opening up his archives yeah, and sure. giving you hours mm-hmm. and hours of interviews as I hate it. Among the other things, he describes it as tawdry. Lots of it is tawdry, right? Because you're sure. describing his behavior, which is fairly described as, as tawdry. There's yeah. again, a lot of sex and drugs and, and, and bad behavior towards people in his life, yeah. from his wife on down. What made him think that if you told his story, it wouldn't be tawdry? Well, I wondered that from the get-go. I mean, when I was trying to negotiate my independence in this book, the thing that he was always like, don't get so much into the sex. Because you know? he came to you and said, yeah, I want, want you to tell my story. I want you to tell my story. He asked me to write the book. I was sort of uh, both flattered but also completely – I had reservations because of other – of him, just knowing him. and seeing Famous how, control freak. Yeah, and seeing that his need – his his ego was so um, outward, you know, it was so shameless in a way. And it was part of his charm too, just how egocentric he was, you know. you he but you could would, see it on the surface. Yeah, he's grinning. He's like got the Cheshire grin. He's He thinks he rules the universe, you know, and he's got that kind of like, you know, you don't see or find people like this very often. There's something kind of like almost um, – um, narcotic about re- re- being around this guy's Because ego. even his diminished state, rock and roll is down, magazines yeah. are down, Rolling Stone is down. Yeah. There's still a sphere in which he's the middle of the sphere. That's right. And he, Bruce Springsteen still is his buddy and Bono That's is right. still his buddy and Mick Jagger is – right. he's act as if they are his buddies. That's right. And he would show me pictures of himself with them every time we got together first thing on his phone. New ones. Yeah, new right. ones. Yeah. Yeah, check me. There's me – just last week, we were, me and Bruce were in South America. Check it out. And and I yeah, I liked that. I thought that was fun. Uh, but I was also like – it was just like curious to me like um, how into it he was. You know, I mean you and I are journalists. He's ostensibly a journalist. He's an editor, right, publisher. You know, after you've sort of been around maybe some powerful people or celebrities or had to interaction with them, there's a kind of a diminishing return there, but not for Jan. He doesn't have that diminishing return thing. He's really just completely energized by by fame and celebrity. By, yeah, and his in his proximity to it, it gives him life. You know, and this was what fascinated me about him. I was just like, wow, he's so unusual in this. And then and the other thing that fascinated me about when I first met him was that he is so wealthy and has so – loves to live high. You know, I mean, He was known – there are people that have like three times as much money as this guy who would never live like him. You know, He lives ostentatiously. And There's decadent. a line yeah. in there about uh, at one point he owns a Gulfstream and then he upgrades the Gulfstream. Yeah. It's the first Gulfstream he has. Yeah. He's got his own private plane. He loves it. He says, I want to figure out trips I can take on it. Yeah. And while I was figuring this out, we would just – we would go circle LaGuardia and have lunch. That's right. Just so I could use the yeah, plane. Yeah, yeah. He loved the private – Plane so much, but underneath that, you would think that he would be very uh, sophisticated and have a kind of like a refinement and and so forth. He's not refined. There's a kind of like um, intense, kind of uh, open appetite uh, that he has a, a feeling of has. About, I, I was thought of him as a barbarian when I first met him. He has a kind of like. You know, uh, I'll give you an example. You know, there's a story in the Telegraph this week. It was a review of my book, but uh-huh. the opening anecdote is that a guy leaves a sandwich on his uh, desk, and Jan just comes by and takes it and eats it and walks away. <laughs> and uh, the first time that I went to his house to uh, go swimming, because I met him in a cafe. He he had just moved up to where near where I live in upstate New York. He says, "Come to the, my child's birthday party." I said, "Wow, okay." This is going to be amazing, right? I go over there, unbelievably beautiful place. You bring your kids? I brought my kids. My wife was there. Annie Leibovitz was there with a couple of – with her kids. Um, his – Jan's sister and her husband and an exotic animal handler with a blue macaw like on his arm. And um, So it's just what you thought? I mean the whole place was just – in my mind, I was yeah. just like, Whoa. You know, of course, I, of course, Annie Leibovitz in a blue macaw. Yeah, of course, this, I was gonna be fine. And it was a beautiful day anyway, and his pool is gorgeous, and the pool house is like this modern, modernist thing that's incredible, twenty foot ceilings. And um, I remember being in the pool, uh, swimming around, and kind of observing him the whole time because, of course, I'm fascinated with this guy. It was like, wow, look at his empire, look at his stuff. And uh, he had poured these glasses of rosé, and they were sitting around on tables around the pool and I just watched him casually walk around and consolidate everybody's glass of rosé into his and then drink it. And I remember thinking, wow, he didn't have to do that. 
but he did it yeah. anyway and because he wanted to. And then – so anyway, there were things like that I would observe and that was the beginning of me just being kind of fascinated with him before the book ever happened. But you, he says, I want to do this book. You have a lot of trepidation. You tell the story in the book. You told it in The Times other places. You, you get lawyers involved to say, I will do the book, but these are the conditions. Yeah. He, he wants some – some constraint or ability sure. to talk about his sex life is yep. the one thing he's sensitive about. Mm -hmm. You agree to that to some degree. Uh, but everything else is yours. And again, he gives you all this information, so encourages all his buddies to talk to you. And again, it's I think in the you end the book saying he's you know the question is is he fifty one percent good or fifty one percent evil or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah. Bad. I, I, bad. I read that book thinking, boy, I do not want to hang out with Jan Wenner. He's an yeah. unpleasant person, behaves terribly towards lots of people. And the best thing you can say about him in many cases is that he doesn't mean to hurt them. Right. So again, I'm, I'm just – did he imagine that you would skip all of that? And just – is he used to a world where no one tells him that? Or did uh, he think, well, there be a little say. bit of it and, and he's going to – the good's going to win out? Yeah, I think that is probably true. He wanted me to write a book, I believe – that defined him – he believes that his success kind of retroactively kind of carves out the history based on having – I won, right? I won the game. I My success is proof of my virtue. And as I was writing the book, it's not like I didn't think he had been successful and I did. Um, but that's not how I thought of the book. He thought of the book as sort of like, um, you know, I mentioned Woodrow Wilson. Go read that biography. He wanted something kind of like vaunted tome. But there was a little bit of a delusion in, in that the material is about rock and roll and it's about the 60s and 70s. And how are you going to write like a real upstanding book about that period? But the truth is actually a lot of books are getting written like that. If you go to the music section of the bookstore and I pick up – and I was doing this all the time to look at these books, these histories. And a lot of them are just really bad and dull, you know, because there's a kind of hagiographic, right? And that's about I mean, most things. Many things are hagiographic, and there's mm -hmm. also there's a well-established now arc of pop and rock and roll and, and media stories in general, where someone rises up, they reach great heights, they have a fall, yeah, involving sex. There's a whole behind the music trope for this, right? right? Yes. And then at the end, they they sort of come out, and and right. in the end, they're still on the up. Yeah, nobody wants to read those chapters. But uh, you know, I remember Dwight Garner reviewed the Paul McCartney uh, biography about a year ago, and he said basically after the Beatles break up, I stopped caring. Yeah. Well, the beauty for me though in this story was that Jan's archive told this incredibly rich story because here you don't have to rely on you know the memories of seventy-two-year-old people or even Jan's memory. You're going in here and you've got actual personal letters. He created this archive. He archived yeah, he himself. He archived he all of it. He saved every last Which again you know, is telling. Sh shred of toilet paper from his life. I mean there was just – everything was in here. It was almost like, whoa, how did you have that kind of prescience that you thought you needed to save all this stuff? And really all of it, like in including like you know a daily to-do memo that his secretary would uh -huh. have typed out for him. He had stacks of these. Like just hundreds of them and you could go through them day by day by day by day. All of his calendars, you could see what he was doing every single it's day. It's someone who thought that everything that he did was important. Exactly. So for me, this was both a challenge because it's like the you know the kind of proverbial drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Uh, at the, at, but on the other hand, I can actually make a portrait of what it was really like to be there. You know, how kind of both banal and messy – and realistic it all was, you know, and how it wasn't all just – it didn't have to have all the nostalgic gloss on it. And when you carved that back, well, you got something just way richer and way more novelistic in a way because you can get into the details that are so uh, – the kind that Tom Wolfe was loving and people like to read back and, in those yeah, days. Yeah, Tom Wolfe may have made up a lot of it, right? <laughs> and that may be true. I didn't. But I didn't have to because of – of this archive. And that archive started to tell a story that Jan wasn't telling. I want to talk about how you actually made this book. First, I want to hear from one of our excellent sponsors. We'll be right back. Recode Media is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, who has a question for you. What if hiring could be easier? What if it was more streamlined, less time consuming? So even if you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you could post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work. 
They notify qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you get the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. That sounds scary, but it's good. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just a day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire! Exclamation point. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Zero dollars. That's right, free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That way, they will know that I sent you to ZipRecruiter. One more time, at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. I'm back here with Joe Hagan, the author of Sticky Fingers, Jan Wenner's life story. You were talking about the archives that Jan Wenner opened up to you. Now I guess he regrets opening up to you. He also told, I guess, many of his famous friends, hey, Joe's going to write about me. You should talk to me. Yeah. And again, you've got to sort of look at the book to sort of get a sense of how many people you talk to. And then in case you don't, you in, you, in the uh, – I don't know what this called. Notes. notes. It's called Notes. Um, chapter by chapter, you explain, here's who I talk to. Yeah. So here's chapter five. Some of the people – Joe talked to for this. Jan Wenner, of course, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Pete Townsend, uh, Clive Davis, Bob Dylan. That's a partial list of one chapter. Yeah. So these are people that got on the phone with you or mm-hmm. opened up their house to you. Yeah. You've been a journalist for a long time. What is the difference between approaching these folks, presumably be, who Jan had said, go talk to Joe, versus when they're promoting something? or A lot mm-hmm. of these folks have very mediated lives, at least when That's it comes right. to the press. And they're used to talking under certain circumstances and they want to promote That's a project right. as a thing they want to sell. Yeah. Here it's a different thing. You're trying to get to a story that isn't really about them. Right. Well, this is where I was very lucky because the subject of Jan Wenner in Rolling Stone is one that nobody asked these people. No, well, so why it's a would new you? idea. Yeah, if you're going to interview Bob Dylan, is it, who's who, – it would any of your questions be like, tell me about Rolling Stone's coverage of you through the years or tell me about the first time Jan Wenner interviewed you? Nobody had asked these people these things. And it turns out that there are these long trails of stories about the ups and downs they had with the guy who arbitrated their image in the press. So they've thought about it. It's not just you asking them about press coverage or Time magazine. This no. is, again, part of the idea of how important Ro- – But it's how important Rolling Stone was and how important Jan Wenner was yes. in those relationships. So these are – a lot of your book is about his relationship with John Lennon or his relationship mm-hmm. with Mick Jagger and the back and forth. Right. Um, so these guys had long histories with them. Yeah, and they were prickly and up and down. And the, Well, the, the thing that got me to understand the vision of the book – at the outset was just kind of a stroke of fortune. I said, I got to write a book proposal. So I'm going to pick one person to write about. I'm going to go into the archive, look through it all and see what comes out of it. So John Lennon I picked. Well, that ended up being Good start. an incredible story. It's the opening of the book and it shows you these uh, a rise and fall, a kind of yawn on the one hand devoted to the Beatles, completely loving the Beatles, loving John Lennon. Just He's a fanboy. Yeah, fanboy of epic proportions. And on the other, you know, willing to, you know, cut somebody down to uh, gain success for himself sometimes. And, you know, he was mercurial in this way. That's the word everybody always uses about Jan, mercurial. And to me, the, the Lennon story showed kind of like uh, – ended up being a blueprint for a lot of what I was seeing with Jan. Now, in the book proposal, I added later the death of Lenin in which uh, Jan produces what ends up being the most iconic Rolling Stone cover ever. Okay, That's naked John Lennon wrapped around Yoko Ono, a picture taken three hours before his death. And that is you know, kind of a turning point in the life of Rolling Stone and in Jan's life. And it allows him in the kind of – arc of this story to uh, kind of have some kind of karmic redemption after he betrayed John Lennon back in the early 70s. He kind of makes it up to him in death and turns him into this kind of Christ figure, Right. which later you learn that Paul McCartney resented. And so these kind of twists and turns, you know. And so when you go and talk to Paul McCartney about Jan Wenner, and Jan Wenner has said to Paul McCartney, he's doing the book, go talk to him, right? So that opens the door. Do you have to spend hours with Paul McCartney before he gets to the stuff that's really irking him, or does it come right out? It seems like it he didn't have to It started to come that. right out. Yeah. And, uh, so these guys have beefs, and maybe Jan beefs. doesn't get that they have beefs. And in fact, uh, you know, 
a media mogul whose name I shall not say right now because it was a private conversation. But he said to me um, a couple of weeks before the book was going to come out, he said, uh, does Jan understand how many people dislike him? And I said, I don't know. He says, well, I don't know why he's doing this. I don't understand. It seems it. like a Barry Dell or David Geffen quote yeah, to me. Just gonna, You're going to nod quietly. So uh, in any case, like – you know, there was a little bit of like a an awareness deficit about, you know, how people felt about him and what people might say about him. And uh, so, well, the Paul McCartney thing ends up – the reason I was – couldn't believe how candid he was but how excited I was by it was it kind of like created whole kind of secret histories that were happening right behind the scenes of all the covers and the biweekly things that we've seen throughout – uh, the history of and the there's history. a lot of horse trading and favors and betrayals that if sure. you look at any one of them individually are pretty petty. Yes. I mean, again, they're interesting because they involve rock and roll exactly, stars. Exactly. Yeah. They're um, about like trademark infringement. Right. But over time, right, there's this this whole life these people had together fighting with each other. That's right. They, the last uh, John Lennon interview, I guess he's speaking. He starts addressing Jan Wanner even though he's not in the room. He's yes. like, I know you want to know what my apartment looks like. It's yes. not that interesting. He's cutting him down. Yes. And as he's doing it, it's great. So yeah. again, like John Lennon is spending time thinking about what Jan Wenner thinks about well, it. Well, yeah. And he and this was – you're talking about Jan Wenner at the height of his power. I mean he was the guy. That cover was coveted uh, real estate for people. You know, To be on that cover could mean you know, more sales, more awareness. It turned you into a sexy – Icon, and that's what rock stars live and breathe on. So, mentioned sex and drugs. That that cover is 1980, right? That's when he shot. Uh, it was January 81. 81. Mm-hmm. So the preceding few years, Rolling Stone has picked up and moved from San Francisco to New York. Mm-hmm. Lots of the original people are, are have been shunted off, fired, or quit. And a lot of the book is dark, but this is a very dark part of the book, right? Yep. There's a lot of cocaine use, which sounds exotic and fun, but you explain quite clearly it's not so much fun. Yeah. He and his wife are, are living this really dark existence, mm-hmm. a sort of separate and drug-addled. Yes. What pulled them – or at least what pulled him out of that? Because in the if it's a movie, right, someone comes and saves him. But right. It doesn't happen in the No, book. it doesn't happen. Well, he didn't – he's got incre- incredible fortitude for drug use. Everybody noted this about him. And he had incredible willpower and he was able to kind of pull back without having to go to rehab like everybody else. And he didn't get into real hard stuff. I mean cocaine is real hard, but he didn't get into heroin and other kinds of things. But he you know, he was able and he drank a lot too. That's another thing. That was that's no He's small got a thing. Swigging from a bottle of vodka. Yeah, and yeah. Tea. And people during, you know, observers of him from the late seventies into like really even the mid eighties remembered him as kind of a mess. And if you see pictures of him, he looks like kind of a mess sometimes, you know, but sometimes he could pull it together focus and actually make decisions and this was just sort of part of his um, kind of constitution, you know, which is no small thing. I mean you, that probably helped him be successful was his ability to sustain. Genetic luck. Genetic luck to sustain to, all of this abuse. I mean it caught up with him in the mid-80s. He gets diagnosed with diabetes. He's overweight and he's a yeah. total wreck and then he has to kind of reformat. But there's a lot of people who, who you could apply that to who haven't had – weren't partying with rock stars for right. real. And I mean, he, and all the people yeah. around him like didn't, you know, Annie Leibovitz, the way you portray her, like had a very difficult time with drugs, oh. nearly died multiple times. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was a, a wreck. I mean, the people, it's funny because I would interview people separately and they would then, each of them unprompted, oh, well, there was the time I had to go get Annie. Uh, out of the hospital and, uh, you know, pretend to be her mother or something and she had been just dumped there by the drug dealer. OK. That's the managing editor. Then Jan tells his story. Then Jane tells hers. Then the associate uh, photo editor tells hers and they're all telling – and then the art director. All these people told me their own versions of all of these stories that were happening and I was like, wow, this was happening a lot. So you triangulate it. And you're not yeah. still entirely sure what happened, but something, yes. multiple things happened that were not good. That's right, bad. And um, and you know, and she talked about it too, to her credit. I mean, she was somewhat reluctant to get into it, but she says I was overdoing it. I was doing a lot of drugs, and I had to see a coke specialist, and blah blah blah. As successful as that magazine was, as Jan Winter was, it financially it really took off in the '80s, sort of well after the magazine's yeah. cultural heyday. That's when I started reading it as a sure. kid. I knew that it was a, th- a thing, but I knew that spin was the cooler thing. When I, f- I think the first issue I picked up had a Jackie Collins 
excerpt in it. Oh, great. In the fiction <laughs> issue. So even as a, like a seventh grader, I knew this was not a cool magazine. Right. But that's also when he started sort of minting money from that publication. What changed in that business? How did he change it? To well, the record it? business consolidated. And, you know, that was their um, – And that's what funded the magazine primarily, right? Yeah. People buying well, ads that for and, and the auto and the cigarette and the alcohol. In fact – that was the main stuff was all this big – you know, the those categories uh-huh. as they would say in the advertising world. I think what partly started to happen was the music business was reanimated by MTV and Jan benefited from that in a big way because suddenly you had stars to put on the cover other than like Foreigner and Styx and Aria Speedwagon. The on the cover. Yeah, because those people, nobody wanted to look at those people. Right. And Jan needed sexy people to put on the cover. And so he had already started to put movie stars on the cover. But here was a whole new world of people to put on the cover, and it was a symbiotic with MTV's success. And it's also one of his – several significant missteps. We, we've referred to one of them. But one of them was he had a chance to own, what, 25 percent or a third yeah, of, of MTV? Yeah, 25 percent of MTV. Would have traded Rolling Stone for that That's that right. He would have been factored in. It would have been – they would have been one company. And uh, – Bob Pittman tells the story and Jan talked about it too. Jan said, you know, one of the first of many bad business decisions not doing that because he would have been, you know, probably uh, quite uh, rich at this point and probably been some kind of quarter owner in right. Viacom Again, or something. Hard you know? to sort of imagine how big MTV was and Viacom was and because yeah. now they're on at the At the time swing. it was huge, yeah. Right. It was the thing. You know, I mean I grew up with MTV. That was my main sort of touchstone, you know, and I subscribed to Rolling right. Stone, but MTV had a personal relationship. So he missed that, but it still powered the publication for a long exactly. time. Exactly. Well, and and the other thing is, is that two other things. They started really focusing on the business in a, in new ways, focus groups, you know, marketing research. And I found it all in Jan's archive. These kind of like really dense kind of uh, examinations of which covers were working and which weren't. So and instead of sort of swashbuckling as an editor, you're actually looking at data. Oh, yeah. And he had business guys who were really involved in what was going on. Kent Brownridge, the, you know, the publisher at the time, uh, was the publisher. He was like uh, the business manager. But he was sort of determining yeah. a lot of what was going on behind the scenes. And then when they hit one million circulation, which in the magazine business was a big deal. If you were now reaching a million guaranteed readers, well, advertisers are going to come flock to you because now they can hit all these things. Well, that was necessarily going to change the editorial and make it more mainstream and focus it and then the, you know one thing built on the other. And then Jan's next thing to do was to do this giant ad campaign, the famous ad campaign, Perception Reality, which was we're going to go out – and tell Madison Avenue, we're, our readers are not hippies, okay? They're and yuppies. You, yeah, you, you think that from the 60s and 70s stuff, that's done. Now it's like, so before and after, it was perception, was a hippie, you know, counting some pennies. Reality is a yuppie with an American Express card. And, you know, one's a sports car, one's a VW bus, one's a sports car, McGovern, Reagan, and it went one after the other. It was a huge success. Embra- embracing the idea of selling out. Embracing it. And... You know, that was fine because it was the Reagan era and it was the 80s and people were – you know, that generation was ready to have kids and make money. And Jan found a way to kind of build that into his formula, which was, you know, kind of a a risky move if you think about it because it did kind of uh, maybe contradict some of the essence of the magazine. And the other thing you point out sort of – and I have a memory of this sort of culturally like at that time, the 60s had become a thing that was sort of museum quality and revered and and you talk about that sort of with the Lenin thing, right? So he he becomes the keeper of the Lenin legend. Right. And then eventually, literally, I mean, at one point starts running the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But the 60s and this this kind of nostalgia and this kind of archival sense of what music is, I'm going to be the guy who runs that. I'm going to be in charge of that. And that's what you come to Rolling Stone for. And yes, maybe there's a picture of Madonna on the cover, but really we are sort of the main through line of rock. And in many ways to its detriment, right? Never embraced hip hop, never embraced music of any sort really. Well, he became conservative when you think about it. And that was a thing that kind of even began in the 70s a little bit. Jan had a really kind of like um, acute sense of the power of anniversaries. Of the power of like – This book was supposed to be tied to the 50th anniversary. That's right. He, he actually – in advance, he, he – one of the reasons that he was so adamant that I do this book even when I was showing some reluctance to do so is he knew his time was running out. 
that you know he'd gone through two other writers. He had one bullet left in the chamber. He's got four years runway, which is about as that's what you need yeah. to write a biography, and at the least. And the 50-year anniversary was coming up, and he knows anniversary is huge. He, every time there has been one, it's been a huge media ex, uh, kind of extravaganza for Jan. And then it, he kind of rolls out the pantheon, you know, the Stones and the Beatles and everybody you love, and it's like this kind of uh, you know Zeus, the Olympic level of uh, you know of the rock gods, right? And he started doing that. Even like uh, you know, in the late seventies, there were. This was already right, again. If you want context, sort of remember almost famous. That's right. right which yeah. is the Cameron Crowe story. Cameron Crowe was a real person writing yes. for Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone. Right. Is there a Jan Wenner cameo in that movie? He is. Yeah, he's sort of like uh, walking across the street in front of a limousine or something like this. I'm, I'm, it's, I'm having a hard time remembering, but it was like a, a walk on. Yeah, yeah. A walk-on. As a sidebar. I, you, I'm not going to spend time talking about Perfect, the movie, but you should yeah. go Google Perfect, the movie. Uh, absolutely, and look for the scene with Jan doing aerobics at I, the end. I, I was unable to find it, for better and for worse. Yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll post it up later, but I don't want to hurt his feelings. It's he, he He's embarrassed by it. I mean, he kind of can laugh at it, but he regrets it. But again, he's someone who had a lot of ambition, and one of those ambitions was to be in movies. Again, a portion of this book is detailing his fights with various people over who was going to make a movie, and was, right. he was with her ringing his off, and then he's not with her ringing his off back and forth. I was going to tell you guys to go Google that movie while we take a break, but you should listen to this message from our fine sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Joe Hagan. Today's show is brought to you by Qualcomm, the company that invented the fundamental technology and everything you love about your phone. From download speeds to stunning photos to GPS, none of it would work the way you want it to work without Qualcomm engineers getting there first. And now, the company that changed everything with a smartphone is about to change everything else. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone, no matter what brand of phone it is. Learn more at Qualcomm with two M's dot com slash we invent. Today's episode is brought to you by Airtable. Airtable makes it easy to create a completely custom editorial calendar that can evolve along with your team. And it plays nicely with Slack, too. Join the content teams of places like BuzzFeed Motion Pictures, Group 9 Media and Condé Nast Entertainment. Visit Airtable.com slash Recode to get $50 off and free credits. I'm back here with Joe Hagan, who's not terrified, uh-huh. even though we just said. We were, um, we were detailing some of Jan Wenner's misses. He missed MTV, uh, even though he profited from it. You made a reference to this. He took on a huge loan to buy back half of his company from – was it just half of Us Magazine, uh, right? Us Weekly, yeah. Us Weekly, which was a huge moneymaker – Initially not a moneymaker. He gets Disney to buy half of it from him. He buys it back, borrows $300 million or yes. at the peak. That's right. A of peak us. of the market and then the market crashes and he's stuck with a $300 million loan and declining revenue. Right, which he's been paying off I guess ever since. In fact, I would say that was the real kind of come to Jesus moment in the last year. The reason he's – partially one of the reasons he's selling all this stuff off is the loan because what happens is um, you know, if you can't uh, – if you're no longer hitting a certain revenue mark – and able to meet the payments, once it goes dips below that line, the bank says, hey, whoa, we got to start finding where you're going to get this money. Right. And that's when the sales started going on. So he sold off Men's Journal. Yeah. He sold off Us. He sold off half of Rolling Stone. The other mm-hmm. half is for sale on now. The market, yeah. Maybe, again, it's been sold while we're speaking. One of the things that's relevant to that is that another thing that he did with eyes open, I think, was say, I don't want to participate in the internet. Yeah. I don't like the internet. I don't like yeah. reading it. You had a I palpable like... reaction to it. Which a lot of people did. Yeah. It's hard to remember. Totally again. understandable. And for a while, probably the smart thing to have done. Yeah, I wrote about that at one point. He 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 would do these licensing deals. And That's says, right. You go internet me. Yeah. I'm not going to spend a penny on it. You pay me. Exactly. He did it with real networks for a while. That's right. And there was a period where lots of smart publishers spent tens, hundreds of millions of dollars burning money on the internet with nothing to show for it. He That's just right. made money. And he didn't. Had he not done that, had he tried to make a go of it, do you think that Rolling Stone would have been a genuinely successful internet property? Well, he may have failed like everybody else, but he may also have laid the groundwork for something that could be successful. You know, I mean, a lot of getting successful in this business or any other is being willing to try and fail and then try and fail again, you know, and see how much you know risk taking you're ready to do. But he uh, he didn't see it. He saw a black hole there and he wasn't going to go there. And then 
the real thing that happened is Us Weekly became so successful, he didn't feel like he had to anymore because here he was making piles of money on a print magazine, which, you know, probably one of the last right, super – Right, print magazine in the 2000s when yeah. that story – you shouldn't be launching new successful magazines. But exactly. it was ginormously successful. Again, hard hugely, to remember. Hugely. And it shielded his company from the rest – you know, Rolling Stone – from you know decline in a way because it was underwriting Rolling Stone after after a time. Again, there's a quote in there. He just says offhandedly about the first the editor who made that uh, magazine very successful, Bonnie Fuller. Yeah, he's talking about the the back and forth because she sort of wanted to go after stars and he mm-hmm. liked the stars being his buddy. And he said yeah. well, she didn't like anyone attractive or successful, and she's the most unattractive person you've ever met. I thought. Yes. God, and he was telling you this, right? Yes, yes, he was. The guy who says this to you in real time, knowing that you're writing a book. Yeah, that's someone who lives but in that's a very Jan. specific bubble. That's Jan. That you know, I told you at the outset, he has this sort of like raw, kind of like unrefined quality about yeah. him. Well, that's how Jan can be. He has this sort of like barbarian gut thing, and he has gut reactions to people and gut responses. And at one time, that was his genius. He knew what people wanted and what was good and what was bad and he could make if you judgments. broke a few eggs in the process or broke all the eggs, yeah, it, was it fine. worked out. It worked out. And, and the people who were upset with you eventually – and this is another part of your the book, mm-hmm. right? Mick Jagger's mad at him and then he comes back. And, yeah, and John exactly. Lennon's mad at him but they come back. You know, right. They're not buddies but at least they do business. Yeah, Irving Azoff who was the manager of the Eagles says something to this effect, you know, like, yeah, there's the falling out but there's always the makeup, you know, because we got to do business here, right? And they would just do business again. But then Jan would complain about Irving. Oh, everything I would do with him turns out screwed up. And they're always complaining about each other because somebody's always feeling like they got the better of the other guy. You know, it's like uh, these guys are all just sort of like pissy competitive guys, uh, you know, duking it out for whatever the uh, remaining bit of shrinking bit of turf is. Exactly. So back to where we started. So you, you spent four years on this thing. Yeah. You know that at it, a it, minimum, there's many, many, many unflattering things about him, but you yeah. finish it. You haven't talked to him about it, right? You've just been working? No, I had uh, – well, towards the end when I was almost done and I was keeping him at arm's length during the writing because I Was he just, calling you up and saying, how's yes, it going? You want, you want, can I read some of it? Uh-huh. What's going on? No, no, you can't read it. And then there were a series of meetings starting in like late last year and into the spring where I would – he'd sit down and say, well, what do you – what's going on? Who have you been talking to? What are you writing? Just what's by the way, it's a staggering thing to realize someone's been – I mean it's flattering, right? But yeah. also terrifying to know that someone's been working uh, on a story to about get you nervous. for four years. He started getting nervous and he started asking me more about it. He started asking more and more pressuring. You should really let me read it. I can make it better. You know that I can make it better, right? And I, in my mind, I'm like, No. But I was very nervous when I would go into these meetings with him. I mean I had like ugh, knots in my stomach. So I'm going to have to deal with Jan. He's going to try to pressure me to do this and I know I can't. And also because you know what you've written about And him, right? I know what I've written and you know, it's always in any journalistic job, you know, there's the collection of all the information and then there's the pivot into writing the story in which you're alone in a room and you're like, you know what? I got to call it like I see it. And this is the story and here's the vision for this book and this is how it's going to roll. You know? And I know who Jan is at this point and I'm not going to shrink from who he is and I can't soft pedal this. You know? And on some level, there's a comic level of folly to some of the things that are going on here. I mean you're talking about a guy who's like the kid in the candy shop who got it all. What if you were a guy in 1967 kind of like put into a slingshot, really a cultural slingshot and in which you're going to be like just shot across the next 50 years and you can have anything you want. The world is your oyster. You can do no wrong. You have this incredible power and uh, opportunity and excess and the whole concept of the 60s is throw off the rules and you're free. Oh boy, this is going to be fun. And Jan had a hell of a lot of fun, you know. But it, there was a kind of a lot of foibles and folly and messiness and darkness and all these other things. By the way, there's there's some special custom cocaine furniture that I keep forgetting. Right. To well, yeah. That's okay. So in resonant. the late seventies, there's a guy named Dakota Jackson, still a prominent furniture maker. You can go find him. Who was from a family of magicians, and he kind of made secret compartments okay. in some of his things, consoles and you know furniture. And he made a console, like a kind of entertainment console for uh, Jan and his wife Jane. It had 
a secret compartment on each side, which he wouldn't say they were for cocaine, but they were used they for were cocaine. They were his and her cocaine. Uh, stashes. Uh, and in the middle, there was a mirror that pulled out that you could snort the lines off of. So this is the life he leads. You're yeah. writing his book. Yes. He, Sorry. He, Digression. No, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I brought us there. Yeah. But you don't show him the book. So at some point, do you sort of slide the thing under the door and then run away? So let me tell you two things that happened before this that are important. One is there was a time when I had to go to him with a list of really private stuff that I had found in his archive and I had to get his signature on them because they were – sex stuff? We, no. We had an agreement that stuff that didn't involve Rolling Stone business at all but were like really private letters between let's say Jan and his wife or Jan and some other person uh, or stuff predated Rolling Stone like you know his diaries, right? Uh, I had to get his sign off. And I remember I'd already finished the manuscript and this was the moment where I go in and he could use this as leverage. He could say, you know what? No to all that and it would really have screwed up the book in a big way and I was very nervous about it. Can you imagine? You're going in, you wrote the book and he, he, could, he could cut out 30 He has the power to like uh, – not 30 but you know a oh, lot chunk. of really exciting yeah. stuff that I loved. And I went in there. And he had looked it over the day before and we were having lunch on 6th Avenue at the Rolling Stone offices looking out over the street. And uh, he says, um, well, I really want to read the book. I think you should show me the book. And I said, yeah, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I said um, – and I wrote kind of a version of this in the back of the book. But I said to him, your legacy is that you are a great editor who gave writers freedom. And you let them run. You let them do what they had to do. You let them fulfill their vision. And here we are at the end of this book. And this is a make or break moment. You know, you can either let me be free and that's your legacy or you try to put the clamp down on me and I'm going to put that in the book. You know what I mean? And I don't think that's what you want. You know what I mean? This is your moment of truth. You're the guy who published Hunter Thompson. Yes, exactly. And that's Tom what Wolf. I told him. That's what I told him. I said, you can't – you've got to let me be free here. And then he said, OK, and he signed off on all the stuff, including the sex stuff. That was a separate thing. I didn't have to show him that, but I felt obligated to. I just wanted him to know that I was being transparent with him and I was transparent with him throughout. Yeah. And I was very honest with him and I would even give him long explanatory ideas about what my vision for the book was. Because I mean part of I think being a responsible journalist just as a person, right, is you don't sandbag person you're writing about. Right. You don't have to give them your – but you say, this is what I'm writing. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. You shouldn't be surprised when you read it. That's it. Um, so you feel like you gave him enough. Well, then further along, the title was going to come out. I knew that was going to be hard for him. And that was going to be the moment where my hand was the most tipped. Sticky fingers. And I, that was like a real epiphany to me, that name. And I knew as soon as it came into my mind, that's the title of the book and there's no going back. I told the publisher, this is it. You can't change it. They didn't want to change it anyway. They loved it. So then they created a press release and a cover. And then it was going to come out on a Monday morning. And so the Sunday afternoon, I wrote Jan a letter. I said, here it is. This is it. There's a press release with it too. And it had kind of like excerpts from the book and some of it was kind of sexy. you know. And he was really upset by the title. And he wrote me an email. He wrote to my publisher. He was really upset. And he um, wrote me a letter. You got to change it. He wrote to the publisher. You got to change that title. That's not you know. He wanted like a Rolling Stone, or Jan Winter in his Times was the one he really wanted. And I said no, Jan. This isn't going to change. And I got very emotional and very intense. And I knew I wanted to keep him on the reservation. I tried to get him to see that this was the moment. You got to hold your breath and jump over the you know river with me here on this one. You know what I mean? But, And I sent him a very long letter about what the title was and what this book was about and it was about ambition and it was about you having your hands on everything and you know, the, just the – this whole arc of your life is about this, you know, in addition to the Rolling Stones album yeah. irony, right? And with the trademark issue that we can discuss. But anyway, so I wrote him that letter and he said, OK, let's meet for coffee. We met for coffee. We had a powwow. That's this summer. This summer. It's May. And I and we we shook hands and he hugged me. And he said, OK, I can live with it. I mean, and he wanted to hear what I had to say about it. And but, but my last conversation with him that at that moment was I said, Jan, you're not gonna like everything in the book. You know? 
Half of it's going to be dark and half of it's going to be light. And you're going to have to – I said take this book to a private island and do some primal scream – read it, do some yeah. primal scream therapy, get through it and come back and embrace the book. I got to say, Joe, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's 80 percent dark. <laughs> well, he does too. But you know, but again, the difference is I don't think it's unfair. That sounds, well, I mean, you've exhaustively researched it. It's I don't exhaustively know that I would researched, want a and not only face. that, like, you know, if some people that I talked to had the druthers, it'd be a lot darker. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, Chicago rock critic who can't stand him. Who, you know, we asked him to do a a uh, conversation with me at a bookstore uh-huh. or whatever. He said no, that book's too nice. That's what he said about the book. It says too nice to you. <laughs> And uh, and I won't say what he called him, but he he just didn't like the guy at all. Yeah. And there's certain people that think he's really kind of dreadful. And I didn't feel like you may think that he was a jerk and did some horrible things in the book, but you know, another friend of mine read it and said, "Yeah, I got you know, geez, he did some really." I, I do wonder. I mean, I know people who've worked for him, and they would not say he's an awesome guy to to hang out with or to work for. Yeah. And I remember the guys who worked at, there at Rolling Stones said, you have to have, it's a clean desk policy. No, I had that. kidding. And Notorious. It, yeah. it's real. He, one, the guy, rock and roll guy wants your desk clean. You have to keep yeah, your yeah. desk clean if he comes by. Yeah. But they worked for him for a long time. Yeah. So there's clearly sure. – whether it's the edit, whether it's the thing that he built and mixed with his personality, people wanted to be around it of their That's own accord. Right. They well, weren't see, forced to He created to something so damn cool that everybody wanted to be on the inside. And there is a kind of like Stockholm syndrome vibe to some of the people that work there. They're yeah. like they'll take a lot to be there. And, he didn't and eventually pay them they a ton of money. <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't pay him a lot of money. And I mean sometimes, but he there was a lot of opportunity there. It was a lot of freedom to do a kind of journalism that was, you know, aggressive and risk taking and interesting. And I respect that. But uh, you know, and the history of Rolling Stone magazine and all of its many great writers was some aspect of my mandate. But really, the book is about Jan yeah. as the avatar for this generation. It's not just about this, like, you know, as I told Jan at the beginning, this is about what happened above deck. And then below deck on your pirate ship is there's a lot of interesting things that went on there, but Robert Draper wrote that book. I'm going to do a different book. It's going to be you and all of these iconic people that you had relationships with and how that translated into what people saw in the magazine. Eventually gets the book. You say, go do your primal scream therapy. Have you heard from him? I mean, uh, and I mailed a, it to him after Labor yeah. Day in September. And that's when the breakup comes. The and then breakup. I didn't hear anything. Radio silence. Uh-huh. And uh, I got nervous. I knew. I was like, oh, God. I can only imagine. And I just basically went zen with myself and just said, well, you know what? The chips are going to fall where they may. If you were a cynical person, again, we'll – Fast forwarding, but there's yeah. you know he broke up with you. There's been a lot of discussion about it. A big New York Times profile of yeah. it. If you were cynical, you'd say this is good for Joe. Yeah, that, some people that, think that. that and I doesn't like it. I could not see that at first. You know, you wanted point. him to like it, or at least to accept it. I wanted him to accept it, and I wanted him to look, read it and say, you know, you can't say this is bad. You know what I mean? It's not. I mean, not to be like arrogant about it, but I think the book's good and I don't think that it's – I think he should – I listen, it's too – it's difficult. How could he? It's 500 pages about him and for a guy like him to look in the mirror for 500 pages and not see what he wants to see is going to be difficult. But isn't that true? Somebody was just telling me if Steve Jobs had lived to read Walter Isaacson's book, he would have hated it. And, sure. And, and then you saw, you saw what happened for all the people who worked for Steve Jobs. Yeah. All acted as his proxy saying we hated it. That's right. And I'm getting that from Rolling Stone people. But the truth is you've got to write what the story is. You know, And the story is not all pretty. And that Jan was uh, – you know, I think of Jan. I always say that he's like Peter Pan and Captain Hook and the same guy. But he was a lot of Captain Hook. And you, know, you can't avoid that that was – Part of what made him successful. His remaining half of the magazine is going to be sold. The way they presented the story is, well, he'd like to still be involved and so would his son. But they're, they're selling the company. Whoever right. buys it mm-hmm. is very unlikely to keep the winners around. I wouldn't think so. No. He's got an X amount of years left on the planet. What do you think Jan Winner does now that he's sold Rolling Stone magazine? <sighs> he sold his entire publishing business off in pieces. I really don't know. And it really is a fascinating question that I think about a lot because – the premise of my book and my belief and my you know, knowledge is that Rolling Stone was Jan's identity 
for all this time. Just imagine you're 21 years old and you've only done Rolling Stone your entire life. I mean, he's done Us Weekly and other things, but Rolling Stone is what he, you know, as he said, put Hunter on my tombstone, not Brad Pitt. He wants that as his legacy. That's who he is. You know, you watched his health decline this summer. He had a heart attack and other things happened to him. And it was happening all at the time that Rolling Stone was going down the drain and there was definitely some kind of like, I don't know what you call that, but, uh, you know, your body reacting to your psychological and emotional condition. It was like as his time with Rolling Stone was deteriorating, he was deteriorating. It really is his identity. It's why he couldn't sell the thing in 2006 or 2008 when he had the opportunity to cash out for piles of money. Oh, we totally forgot that. He could have sold the whole thing to Hearst and yeah. a billionaire. He could have been – that. that was another business. Yeah, yeah. Really he could have up. been huge and he couldn't do it. He couldn't let go because – and this is David Geffen was talking about this in, in the book. Jan was afraid he wouldn't have any friends yep. if he sold the whole thing because this was his entire – If you don't own Rolling Stone, if you don't publish Rolling Stone, is Bruce Springsteen still going to hang out in South exactly. America with you? And that's – he was worried that that wasn't going to happen and Geffen's like, oh, I've sold companies here and there and if, if they're not your friends, they're not your friends. Just whatever. You only have two friends anyway in your life. you know. So just go on. But Jan couldn't and there was a kind of insecurity there I think and it really was the moment that tested Jan's kind of identity versus – do you want to be as rich as God, you know, and have a ton of money, or do you, can you let go of this thing? And in a way, it's such a got a Shakespearean uh, moment uh, for me, and uh, and it kind of plays that way in the book. But and now, what we're seeing since then is the result of that decision, and it's got a tragic element to it, you know. Yeah. It's a tragic element, except that he's still going to have a really nice house. Uh, yeah, tragic in that you know, it's tragic. I guess for me, because I, in my book, had followed him from the cradle, yep. you know, and when I got to the end of my book, it was very emotional for me and very powerful for me. I mean, even though there was all these reasons to dislike Jan or to think that Jan was sort of a rapscallion, I could feel the end for him in a way that he wasn't even really expressing, but I could see it happening to him. I could see behind his facade of everything's great, which he always does anyway. He's like, you know, kind of poses as like everything is on the up. You fake it till you make it. Yeah, exactly. Fake it till you make it. And But underneath, I was intuiting and had been around him enough to know that there was something really uh, strongly upsetting to him. And you him. had to like him because even though I get my, my guesstimate is 80 percent negative stuff. Yeah, yeah sure. But you spent four plus years with him. Yeah. Plus part of your childhood, et cetera. Yeah. You had to like him. Otherwise, yeah. you can't do a project like that. No, no. It's, and I did like him. And there's a level at which I liked him as a journalist because I just found him so fascinating and at times absurd. There's a there's a guy named Earl McGrath in the book who um, has a quote in there um, where he says, um, there's some people you like just because how terrible they are. And he was like, not that he's terrible, but he does things where you say, I would never dream of doing that. But he does it with such verve. You just got to admire it. And there is a level at which a lot of Jan's friends feel that way about him. They see him being such a rapscallion and they're like, can you believe that Jan did that? I mean – but they kind of like see he's got this Cheshire grin on his face at the end of the day and he's like, what, me worry? And they just have to So laugh. you guys are going to end up hanging out somewhere cool, yeah. eating or drinking or smoking something interesting yes. in a year or two. You know, I will say this and I've been saying this and I – it's either wishful thinking or I don't know what you want to call it. But I do believe he will come around to the book. But it will be for opportunistic reasons because it's John Winter. I'll tell you what I think may happen if I were just a – Movie deal. Movie deal. Because he's the bottleneck on the whole thing. And imagine it was a TV show, like a Mad Men kind of thing, which kind of has that yeah. serialized vibe to it because he ran a serialized magazine. <laughs> you know. You get the sense like eventually people are going to come knocking on his door and say, hey, I know you're, reti Netflix yeah, you're retired. How about you become executive producer of a giant Netflix show and, and what's he going to say? You know, I mean, So maybe that softens the blow for him. I don't know. But I also just think the book stands you – know, this is my declaration, OK? Yeah. Want it here. Yeah, I, I think the book stands as a real legacy for him that it wouldn't – if it had been the book he may have wanted, you know, if it had turned out to be, you know, this kind of like a, as Dwight Garner described it, you know, this bust in the you know foyer of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, 
That would not have been a legacy for him. It's a significant accomplishment. It's 500 pages. We spent an hour talking about it. We could keep talking about it. We're going to end it here so you can go read it. Go buy Sticky Fingers by Joe Hagan. Joe, thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. It's great fun. You guys know I like doing these interviews, and I'm glad that you like listening to them. All we ask from you is that, well, two things, that you patronize our fine sponsors because they're awesome, and that you tell someone else about this podcast so they can like it too. If you like seeing this stuff live, like the Samantha B podcast we did just last week, good news, we're doing a Code Media Conference February 12th and 13th in sunny California. Me and Kara Swisher have a bunch of great guests. Come see that. Thanks to our sponsors, Qualcomm, Airtable, and ZipRecruiter. Thank you to Cadence 13, who brought those sponsors to this show. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, and my editor, Chris Basil. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week. Hello, Recode Media listeners. This is Ezra Klein. And Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with Sarah Clef, we co-host The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast. Each week, we go deep into the details of policy, everything from what is being debated before Congress to the policies that maybe are not on the radar but should. We've dug into universal basic income, single-payer health care, trade, productivity statistics, really anything we can think of to do. We, we, we like getting into the details of this stuff. You can find The Weeds on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out, leave a review, and we would love to hear from you.